0: I'll keep, I'll keep the lavalier on. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. Welcome back from the winter break, our two-week um, hiatus from Grand Rounds, and hopefully folks were able to engage and uh, achieve some comfort and joy over the holiday weeks and are keeping warm. A bit of housekeeping, I thought I had found this from Dr. Shepkin in the pediatric library the last week before Christmas, but does anyone else recognize this? It'll be, it'll be up on Debbie's, uh, on, our, on our bookshelf outside my office if I misidentified who had that. So um, welcome back, happy 2018, we're in January. We will have Grand Rounds delivered next week by Dr. Samantha House on the quality of quality. You're going to be ready, Sam? So. Excellent. So. And, um, and we've had some good news. Um, I just recently saw that, uh, and I think I saw, did Dr. Leannar walk in yet? <laughs> <laughs> Joanna? I'd oh, surprise her. She was recently notified, we were recently notified that she was uh, elected to the Society for Pediatric Research. So in she walks the newest member of the Society for Pediatric Research, Dr. <laughs> Joanna Leannar. It's January. It's a busy month. We have one month to do our e-learnings, not three. It's not till March. So yes, we're back in full swing and it's time to get to work. And, um, and for those who are here, I appreciate adding your codes for e- CME. Yes, we get CME and laptops closed. So it's my pleasure to provide the annual state of Chad update, state of Chad address. Dr. O'Sullivan, I will say that the state of CHAD is strong. (laughs) So we can start right there. Um, We've done this before, and actually thinking back, we had the first sort of all CHAD Grand Rounds in November of 2014 when we recapped our work over that summer about Imagine CHAD. We were imagining CHAD, and we didn't launch Imagine CHAD, but in some ways we unveiled Imagine CHAD November 2014. Got back together in 2015 in September, Launched our journey together to high reliability with a nice talk by Pam Hoffley and Sam Casella. Um, At that point, we had a June 2016 target for service line conversion as well that we (coughs) we, uh, embarked on, led by Dr. Berkmeyer. Last year, about a month ago, we gathered to discuss where we were post-election. And post, actually, a reduction in force that affected us. And talked about importance of political advocacy. We've had a couple of opportunities to get together, all together, as much as possible this year. September, Dr. Conroy joined an all-CHAD meeting. And then in November, some of us, not all of us, in terms of where we've been, had an opportunity to gather with, um, convened by Dr. Conroy, as well as Dean Compton of the medical school to, to discuss sort of the arcs of health. There are five main arcs that Dwayne and Joanne are going to um, have prioritized for those Upcoming development campaigns, including a capital campaign. And the five include uh, TDI, Norse Cotton Cancer, our Cancer and, and, and Health Services Research, Neurosciences, Heart and Vascular, and Child Health is one of the five arcs. And describing a story that links all of our components in a coherent, compelling way for those who might fund us and support us was an opportunity that we got that I'm going to share with us today. So we're going to look at where we're going. Not as much as where we've been, but where we're going. So who recognizes this paragraph? Can somebody tell me where it's from or what it is? Sam? Appreciative inquiry. Yeah, so this was one of the products of appreciative inquiry that we engaged in in Imagine Chat. And what specific statement <coughs> is it? it Sharon, <laughs> do you know? Uh. So it feels like a vision. We call it a dream statement. We called it a dream statement. Chad is the crown jewel of Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health, a sustainable integrated academic pediatric health system, so on and so forth. It was a long one-page document. Does anyone remember actually the first line of the dream statement? (laughs) It's not on everybody's bulletin boards. (laughs) It started out with, imagine it is, imagine it is what? 2019. Imagine it is 2019. (coughs) it's 2018. (laughs) We're imagining it is 2019, and we have already been four years down that journey, and it really struck me as impressive. And um, again, in 2017, in November, we had a chance to look a little bit at our vision. And our arc in 2018 hopefully is this. This is the arc that we described for those gathered in this visioning session. So our patient population drives our quest for discovery and innovation disseminated by by education and advocacy. Our patient population drives our quest. That's where I'm going to start. Obviously that is always the core of what we do. Going back to 2014, We clearly have always had our patient population as our core. We set out some important action plans out of that appreciative inquiry process. (coughs) We're always going to share what we learn about delivering the best care by the best people in the right places every time. And I'm proud to share that we've actually achieved a fair number of these action plan goals. Um, Certainly... The institution adopted a service line structure, but I think we were in the lead on that, and we are in some ways further ahead than most service lines in actually having a regionally integrated service line. Our Manchester hub continues to flourish with addition uh, and hosting of core faculty like Dr. O'Sullivan, who I pointed out earlier, and many others. We are going to hopefully have further expansion there as Dartmouth-Hitchcock embarks on some sort of a building process in the coming years contingent on probably finding, not contingent on, but dependent either with or without a hospital partner in the South. But that will give us opportunity to even further expand our resources and services and our Manchester hub. We have have actually engaged in a Chad leadership forum, primarily done with our section chiefs in what we call council every month. The first Wednesday at 7 (laughs) a.m. we're doing leadership development. And we constantly live our positive core. We'll always need to be developing our best care but some of these elements that are noted in the list are um, integral to our complex care service, which really we've recently asked our talent and our expertise in TLC, NICU follow up, and spina bifida to broaden their scope to a broader population, bringing some of these tools. So none of this is completely ever accomplished, but we've really made progress on our imagining in 2014. The state of affairs that we noted in 2014 is no less true today in terms of workforce shortages affecting Children's Hospital. Having timely access to pediatric specialists is an ongoing and probably a future challenge. Revenue sources for research and patient care were noted to be shrinking then and that was even before the attacks on Medicaid uh, came into fruition last year. And so navigating the murky waters of competition, collaboration, and philanthropy as well as (coughs) partnerships can be difficult but important, these are generic challenges that all children's hospitals face. We, of course, are still here in northern New England, and we have unique challenges here in our nice home in the woods uh, of New Hampshire and Vermont. So some of our more unique challenges that we face in caring for our patients include a flat to declining demographic. Three oldest states in the United States are Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. Pretty stable number of kids, not increasing. Rural population with significant poverty, as we know, that wouldn't necessarily, people wouldn't believe when they think of Dartmouth, per se. Challenging transportation systems to get those kids here. And we're a bellwether region, unfortunately, in the opioid epidemic (coughs) nationally, which has led to some of our uh, academic uh, (coughs) achievements. So our philanthropic priorities, in some ways, remain very consistent with what they have been over the past two to three years. We want to complete the inpatient... Integration project on 5 East that includes a new home for Tad Pain Free in the institution, probably um, closer in some ways, hopefully, to the other procedural areas, but an important goal that needs to be completed and funded. We're going to continue and enhance and expand the capabilities in our hub in Manchester uh, such that we have the full suite of ambulatory robust services. We're going to launch a new nursery. We need a new ICN in the next five years, probably. We, are, we do not have a 21st century neonatal intensive care unit, so that's on the list. And Dr. Conroy said to Dorothy Mulaney when she had an, intro, uh, an initial meeting with Dorothy, I can fundraise for an ICN for you. We can, we can do that. And um, co- co- coincident with that will be a regional perinatology program with a dedicated transport service for newborns and children. Um, because we do know that seventy percent of the families live south of Concord, and it would be nice to be able to get the bright babies to the right nurseries and not necessarily have everyone have to spend long periods of time far away from home up here. We would also like to endow some essential services that clinical volumes alone can 't support in our region and in our payment region so So our friends from development are in the second row, our friends from communications and community relations are in the f- f- back corner. They've heard this all before, and they know that this is important. What's always important is, is, our, is our mission, our true north. And you may have noticed this has sort of gotten dusted off in the past six months. Dr. Conroy has brought back the mission statement. Not that it ever went away. Not that it ever wasn't our mission, but it wasn't as prominent, perhaps, in the past five years. And it is now posted prominently. If you haven't noticed in most meeting rooms, and it's always our true north. And if I just add one word. Our true north really is the Dartmouth-Hitchcock mission. We advance child health through research, education, clinical practice, and community partnerships, providing each person the best care in the right place at the right time, every time. Really something that I think is held true to most people who've been here since 2008, I think, when this, when this mission was developed. <laughs> and I've shown this before. This is going to be sort of a greatest hits reel in some ways. You're going to see some slides that are shown at all CHAD meetings or previous Grand Rounds. But in the context of service lines, it was sort of challenging to describe what a service line was. But ultimately, it came down to delivering the best care in the right place every time, with our department of pediatrics being the expertise for standards and, and practice <laughs> guidelines. Our locations, our hubs, as well as our primary care medical homes, being where the care had to be executed on every time with high reliability. And then together, our location leaders and our departmental leaders sort of determined where are the right places to deliver what types of care. You don't deliver all care in all settings. We don't have a PICU in, 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 our, in our Concord practice, we don't have, in our primary care practices, um, all while developing and delivering the most talented people. So we never lost the best care right place, every time. We've had different structures to execute on it. And I've shown this before to try and simplify it for myself in terms of what is best care? What does this mean? And I think we know that, or I think this is easy to uh, wrap your mind around, that we want to keep people safe and healthy. So from a patient perspective, hopefully best care looks like keeping me safe and healthy, helping me heal in some way, not necessarily cure, but helping me heal and treating me with respect. And you can think of that as the best quality care. Quality is clearly an important tagline that is used in healthcare constantly. I, I sometimes shudder that it's sort of become this nebulous concept, but it really is a modifier for something. And it really is best quality care that we want to deliver. So, keeping me safe and healthy is safety, helping me heal is clinical effectiveness, and treating me with respect to pa- is patient experience. So, the, those are three corners some of the three corners of the triple aim in terms of what we're trying to achieve. So we're trying to achieve quality. We know it is best care or best quality care. <coughs> We've heard a lot about value, too, in the past five years, and, and as well as quality. And I saw this last month. I thought it was an interesting survey that came out of the University of Utah. And it, and it, it resonated with me because it asked the question, what is value? Whose value is it anyways? Is it all about service or quality or, or cost? Patients, employers, and physicians have conflicting priorities for what constitutes value. So consumers, patients, and customers, insurers, don't necessarily agree. And this is an example of that. So this is the value equation the University of Utah uses from the consumer or patient perspective, which is quality plus service over cost. From the payer perspective, it might be, uh, which is usually the employer, it might be improved productivity plus employee satisfaction over cost, but ultimately the survey revealed something that I think, again, resonates with me, that ultimately what constitutes value has been rendered a buzzword, a popular slogan with unclear meaning, and it really is probably dependent on which perspective you come from. I'm going to try to avoid using that term value as much as I can because it really depends on which perspective you're looking at, and um, even this notion of an equation to me doesn't you know, resonate because we don't have quantities for quality and satisfaction um, or service. And you could argue that, well, let's think of a Hyundai. If it had twenty thousand quality points and it cost twenty thousand dollars, versus you know a, a Lamborghini that had ninety thousand quality points and ninety thousand dollars, as an equation, those would be of equal value. If it were truly an equation. But that's not how value works. Not everybody can afford the Lamborghini. And not everybody would necessarily even value the white Lamborghini if they could afford it. It really starts with what you can afford and then what sort of is important to you. (coughs) But I think this term is sort of, I don't know if it's at a crossroads, but I think this was an interesting survey in terms of what are we aiming for. So we're aiming to give the best care at the right place every time for our patient population. And our population that we care for drives our quest for discovery. Again, we're trying to advance child health, research, education, clinical practices, partnerships, et cetera. But it raises the question, what is child health or what is health? So what? Oh, you're not raising your hand, Deb. Well, well, what is health? Anyone else want to raise their hand? I shout something out? Should I pull a, a Joanne Conroy and pick on someone? <laughs> Steve, you look like you were going to... Sure. It's just kids achieving their potential growth and development. It's a dynamic concept, I think, and not a static concept, because kids are growing and changing. Thank you. I, I like the notion. I like that notion. I like the notion that it's a dynamic concept. It's, it probably doesn't lend itself to definition, per se. Uh, there is a World Health Organization definition that people may know the part. It's, it's not merely the absence of disease, which is the part that's rememberable, but I didn't put that up there. So, um, so indulge me a little bit, and I, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about a definition of health that I want to use today or propose, and that it is a dynamic concept. I'm going to suggest that health is sort of the, is almost the default. It's almost the natural state. It is whatever an individual defines it to be for themselves, and, and we, I think, sometimes get a little bit too prideful and think that we create health or we provide health for people when, in fact, they are healthy or can be healthy. Now, there are influences on health, for sure, which can enhance or detract, among of which, and this will not be an exhaustive list, but among which include genetics, including genetics and genomics and all of that information, which is so determinant of what state of health one might achieve but not completely, not completely definitive of it. Because there are certainly those who have genetic conditions or what we might call diseases who fully feel themselves to be healthy. One thinks about the deaf community and the hearing loss, how some will embrace and celebrate that as part of their being and part of their health and not as a, a detractor. There are exposures <coughs> that we encounter as humans. Food and drink, infections and toxins, trauma and violence, <coughs> among others. There's the broader environment in global warming. So I would distinguish between these two in terms of those exposures that one might have the ability to avoid or choose, and <coughs> those that one has a little bit less ability to avoid or choose in terms of the environment being so large. <coughs> and then there's the whole host of resources, either having a abundant or adequate or most often inadequate love and caring, housing and community, education and opportunity. Sometimes people call this the social determinants of health. Someone would clearly be able to teach me and those who are at TDI and getting master's public health degrees. This should be three-dimensional. These clearly all interact with one another. It was fascinating in November when, um, when the neonatologist came and talked about how we can see changes in the genetics related to exposures and resources. Clearly, environment influences research. They all influence one another, and the interdependencies are not up to my capabilities of representing in PowerPoint or Prezi, which I wasn't able to try to learn from. But this is clearly a, a construct. And I didn't put health care on that, specifically, as, as a specific influencer or, or informer of health. Because as co wrote in the Journal of American Medical Association 2016, some people need health care some of the time, but all people need health and wellness all of the time. And we, from our perspective in healthcare, care, might lose sight of that from time to time, that health is sort of determined by folks' interaction with us. But in fact, it might be better determined by their lack of interaction with us because <laughs> they don't need us. So in terms of health and in terms of the ability to improve health and to influence health, I want to tell some hopeful stories actually I think today. and I think there are going to be things coming down the pike that will help advance the ability to improve health, technology being a big one. So when it comes to the environment, I thought it was interesting in July that um, Volvo is one manufacturer, but not certainly the only manufacturer, that is committed to an all-electric fleet, I think by 2025 but certainly within our near lifetimes. So getting away from the internal combustion engine, which, as we know, is a source of pollution and global warming uh, through carbon emissions. This is, this is pretty heady stuff. That we're, we're at the point now, most of us remember the very first electric vehicles and the Priuses and the like, and now there's all electric vehicles, but a manufacturer is going to have all electric, and probably many will follow. How in that? How is that and why is that? Well, electricity is, um, is about to get a heck of a lot cheaper than it ever has been. So this is a graph from, um, well, from Google, from, from Google Images, but, but um, Ramez Nam is only one of many thinkers who is positing uh, an incredible improvement and increase in the utilization of solar power to, to fund electricity. And this shows, this shows the cost of solar electricity in dollars per kilowatt, with us still being somewhere around natural gas, depending on whether you're in the sunniest location or somewhere up here, somewhere north, (laughs) and showing doublings in the amount of gigawatts uh, on the Earth that are capturing solar energy for electricity. And um, pretty soon, if we start doubling from 200 to 400 to 800, we will be below the point where solar energy is cheaper than natural gas. And these doublings happen fairly rapidly, or it's hard to estimate how quickly they're doubling, but this, sh- this shows essentially a bit of an exponential curve in terms of doubling of the amount of gigawatts and getting to a point where it will just be um, obvious that solar energy will be the source for electricity because it is so abundant and it will be so easily captured. And the technology, the solar pal- panels and cells are becoming so inexpensive that this is driving these decreases in costs. And that's because Solar energy has potential to be what's known as an exponential technology, which is a technology that grows in an exponential rather than a linear fashion, which has challenges for our brains. So exponentially accelerated technologies, and energy isn't as strong as some others. Digitized technologies explicitly exhibit this growth pattern, this this evolution. So they exhibit deceptive growth. So initially... It doesn't look like a heck of a lot's going on with these exponential technologies, exponential growth. It looks pretty flat. It looks linear or, or flat, you know, because the doubling is in a very small scale, 200 to 400 to 800 to 1,600, a small number of solar panels. But once you start hitting the bend in the curve and you're doubling from 1,600 to 1,600 to you know how it goes when you do 2 times 4 times 2 times 2. All of a sudden you get to a point where you're past sort of linear growth and you're into an, a disruptive phase. And that disruption is pretty <laughs> exciting. So digitized technologies exhibit deceptive growth, pretty flat and boring, until they become disruptive. And after the fact, you realize how disruptive they were. So they're disruptive in that they become dematerialized. So digital photography, and, and this has almost become cliche, the talks you go to and you hear the Kodak story. But the Kodak story where there's no such thing, there any such thing, but there's really no such thing as film-based photography anymore. Ways an app on your phone, could very well put Garmin and other GPSs out of business. It doesn't require a GPS device. It's all an app. They are demonetizing these disruptive innovations. So Airbnb, huge threat to the moneta- monetary uh, position of hotels. Craigslist wipes out classified ads in newspapers, potentially wiping out some newspapers in the, in the process. Uber, of course, a threat to the taxi force and the monetary position of taxi forces. And these accelerated technologies are democratized. So 3D printing is becoming, in itself a, a digital uh, a, a exponential technology, is becoming easily on most desktops. Most of our kids probably have a 3D printer. If you've got school-age kids, probably have access to a 3D printer at their schools. And homes will be very easy, if not already. Crowdsourcing... Even Apple, Microsoft, and Facebook were famously developed in garages by small groups of individuals, Steve Jobs and Wozniak, Bill Gates, <coughs> Mark, um, what's his name? Uh, <laughs> individuals in their basements or in their dorm rooms are able to create innovations that transform the world because digital technology is, is so available. And this is from Peter Diamandis's book Abundance. The future is better than we might think on this day of June, January 3rd, 2018. And a lot of this future hope is based on what's known as the Law of Accelerating Returns, which is developed by Ray Kurzweil, who is at Google, but who did in fact invent the musical electronic synthesizer, the Kurzweil, as well. So it's based on Gordon Moore's observation, which is, a, which is known as, Gordon, as Moore's Law, which is that the price for performance ratio of integrated circuitry, basically computing computing power, has doubled roughly every 18 months or so since integrated circuits were developed. But what Kurzweil identifies is it doesn't just apply to the improvement in chips, you know, the chips that run our computers, but any information-enabled technology or enterprise follows this law. The annual doubling pattern does not stop once it's started. And information now fuels artificial intelligence and robotics, bioinformatics and data science, which we heard a lot of in the last Grand Rounds of December from um, the gentleman from Case Western, genetics and neuroscience, and nano and biotechnology are all information-enabled technologies that can grow exponentially. And this is is Kurzweil's example, at least when it comes to computing power, showing analytical engines, bell calculators, Many of us live through the Apple II, the IBM PC, the 8286, who had a 286 machine? <laughs> um, Pentium's, the Pentium's coming out, Fast and Furious, Quart, you know. It, it, is a, it is a really strong relationship, this doubling of computing power over time. And you see this is an exponential scale. And this shows the technology. So just as an interesting aside, but also relevant to sort of the environment, and the burden of meat production and, and, and agriculture on our environment and well. health. <laughs> this is on the web, folks. I don't tell you to take your computer out now, but either on your phone or your tablet or when you get home. These are websites. Engineered cow-free cow's milk made from cells in, a, in, a, in, vitro, in vitro. Lab-grown animal-free meat coming to our grocery stores. I don't know if the co-op will have it next year. (laughs) But but this this is an incredible burden on the environment, the amount of animals who are grown for food and grown to provide sustenance and and has huge impacts. This is coming our way, already here. So exposures, sort of those things that we take into our body or our bodies uh, interact with in terms of determinants of health. So this is, a, this is a, a really interesting site, the International um, um, Health Metrics and Evaluation website, which is free, The Global burden of Disease. You can also Google and find this site. It allows you to create interactive graphs showing what the burden of illness is. And this shows for um, the United States, all ages, 2016, disability-adjusted light years. Life years, disability, (laughs) life years, not light years, uh, attributed to, um, this didn't line up right, communicable, (coughs) maternal-fetal medicine, and neonatal is red, or nutritional is red. Non-communicable is the blue, and the injury is the green. So the the burden of illness in the United States, first of all, the big box shows that the big burden of illness in the United States is related to non-communicable causes, non-communicable causes and risks. It's not, it's not infections, it's not communicable maternal quite as much, and even in the rest of the world it's increasingly looking like this. Injury is an important slice. So blue, red, and green and the dark blue shows, and the dark red and the dark green shows those disability adjusted life years, dailies, that are attributable to environmental or occupational risks, so exposures. So significant component. This sort of takes it in a different way and takes all causes, attributable risk factors for the dailies, and and takes the circle. So the outer circle, there's a a white amount, and I just didn't uh, translate so well on this screen. But these are unattributed. But within the colors, you can see attributable risk. And metabolic is essentially some component of genetics. That's blood sugar levels, cholesterol levels, BMI high blood pressure, sort of the metabolic um, determinants. But this big blue box, or or part of the pie, is behavioral risks. And the purple is a combination of behavioral (coughs) and metabolic risks. Environmental is here in yellow, and environmental overlapped with um, behavioral is here, and then in the middle is, is all three. But the money is in the behavioral and the metabolic. And this represents that in that big box plot of the United States 2016, where, again, this is the same causes of disability, or essentially morbidity, and you can see that these boxes have gotten much more shaded when you attribute them to behavioral risks that that we basically inflict upon ourselves. And and C. Everett didn't project either very well, but um, we have an institute here at Dartmouth the C. Everett Coop Institute that Jim leads with Sue Tansky, Jim Sargent with Sue Tansky and Auden and others, whose mission is to advance health and well-being through disease prevention. But more specifically, the target of the Coop Institute is those non-communicable diseases, those diseases of consumption, of tobacco, of course, where Jim got his start in his research, and alcohol, and obesogenic foods, all of which are mass-marketed, and therefore profitable to multinational conglomerates, companies that market them a lot to kids to get them hooked on these products which are bad for their health. And the Coop Institute studies those, rigorously identifies those threats, and then advocates for public policy changes to um, buffet against those forces. So this is an important strength that we have here at Dartmouth that I think we need to continue to foster and, and grow and will. Genetics are clearly important, and probably if someone were to uh, attribute the percentages, you know, genetics and resources would be uh, the highest proportion, probably probably well over 70 percent. Um, and we all know that the Human Genome project is completed, and that whole uh, exome sequencing and easy, cost-effective genetic uh, testing is really within reach. But I don't know if this is true for you, I think. So far, we've been underwhelmed by the promise of, of genetics and medicine and genomics. And I think that relates to this other law, in that we are quite linear in our thinking. So we think about the future in a linear way. And again, genetics probably has a bit of an exponential component. We probably initially overestimated the impact of genetics, or we were you know, overestimating how it could improve. At some point we will, I don't know where we are in this curve, but at some point we're going to be surprised to see that we might have underestimated or we do underestimate it. But I think it's fairly certain that genetics, genomics, and again, some people are already doing this whole exome sequencing um, in their practices is, is about to ra- uh, um, radically transform our ability to provide healing and to provide even cure in some cases. And I know the CF team is certainly very close to treatments that are very specifically genetically directed and can feel that already. So we're on this curve somewhere, and we're probably going to end up out here not too far. So what are our opportunities here? And the opportunities we talked about with with the visioning um, session was that we really could and should develop a Dartmouth Child Health Research Institute, including our Children's Environmental Health and Prevention Center, which we have strengthened. Margaret Carragus leads that. And even though it's less um, important than, or has less of an impact perhaps than behavior, it still has important impact and and has Mm. influence on a lot of the most important diseases, and it is influenceable. We'd like to further develop what's called regulatory prevention sciences at the Coop Institute. Um, That's sort of what Jim calls that line of work in sort of buffeting the the major uh, beneficiaries of the consumption. We certainly have the ability to enhance pediatric health services research at TDI, and we now have a clinical research unit that Paul Palumbo leads, which has um, been seeded by (coughs) an NIH grant from the IDEA State's Clinical Trials Network, so engaging in (coughs) multi-center networks to to allow our patient population here in northern New England to access trials, which they might otherwise be um, unable to access because of where they live, and then being the pediatric home for a lot of good clinical research that does happen here on this campus, cystic fibrosis, which not only is an important CF center in New Hampshire, but is now a, an important component of one of the interdisciplinary clusters that President Phil Hanlon at Dartmouth College has seeded with um, the ability to recruit high-level interactive uh, collaborative scientists. So that's, uh, we've already just uh, hired Jim Bliska, who is a microbiologist immunologist from um, Stony Brook to lead that cluster. IBD and obesity, of course, our Cancer Center, our Heart and Vascular Center, and Neurosciences has big dreams of a brain institute at Dartmouth spanning the campuses, building on strengths of neuroscience at the college, as well as what goes on at Geisel and here at the hospital. So our patient population drives our quest for discovery and innovation. So here again, innovation, here's, here again is, is that uh, law of accelerating returns or the exponential growth shown again and showing computing power, and showing Kurzweil's estimate that we are pretty much at the point where computing power on Earth has surpassed the brain power of a mouse, closing in on us as humans, and if it continues at this rate, the computing power will surpass all brain power of all humans combined, and really gives you the potential to do things with big data and artificial intelligence that well, I can't conceive of, I can't predict or imagine, but, but someone will. And, and just another example of sort of, just to remind us how the accelerating pace of change really has been true and not related just to silicon or silica. Um, the agricultural revolution to the industrial revolution was a period of about 8,000 years. And then the industrial revolution to the light bulb was 120 years and only 90 years from a light bulb to the moon landing, and only 22 years from the moon landing, <laughs> penultimate of human achievement to the World Wide Web, which I won't say anything about penultimate of human achievement, but an important thing that we can't live without. And then just nine years till the genome was sequenced. You felt it, you see it, you know it. Life is accelerating. Change, the pace of change is faster the interval between major successes or achievements is much shorter than it ever was before. So who was a Star Trek fan growing up? <laughs> Kathy! Yeah. So what was the thing that they used to diagnose? The tricorder. The, the tricorder. There are, there are, there are tricorders now. There is a. There has been a, a competition, a prize competition in Silicon Valley to identify and we prize money to folks who can identify and create the tricorder. I'm not sure it's in practical use yet. It might, it'll probably be on our phone. So maybe this is a little bit in the future. But this is coming our way in terms of enhancing our ability to diagnose and treat illness. But not just our ability to diagnose disease, anyone's ability to diagnose, the machine's ability to diagnose, um, disruptive innovation to us as healthcare providers. Maybe a little bit closer and not as threatening is. So, could you imagine? Could you imagine that the offspring of these two technologies, yeah, Alexa and I, uh, Amazon Alexa and, and IBM Watson get together and have a have a have a have a child, uh, Alexa Watson? Um, you take the computing power that Watson has, and um, it's um, it's artificial intelligence and, and machine learning and of course Alexa with its natural language processing and its interface, this thing could be in the room with us as care providers, documenting the entire interaction, picking lab tests for us, advising us on, on therapeutics, just, just in the corner, no more screen. And I think this is hard to conceive of because we're stuck with EPIC. Right? We're stuck with epic. We are still in this. Not only is that deceptive growth, exponential growth, but it's disappointing growth. It is a period of disappointing technology. And only after you've had the iPhone moment, where it's amazing that you look back and say, aha, things got better when we had whatever.
1: Of course, there's chaos
0: with that, but we're stuck and we're not there. But it's coming. Alexa's there. Right now, it turns on your lights. You know, that's so much harder than flipping on a light switch, but, but, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to transform what we do. To the point that Newsweek in June cited how artificial intelligence, A, is going to help cure our sick healthcare system. The doctor will see you now. It's a little scarier than it's comforting, but for decades, technology has relentlessly made phones, laptops, apps, and entire industries cheaper and better. Well, healthcare is stubbornly loitered in an alternate universe where tech makes everything more expensive and more complex. But now startups are applying AI, big data, and automation in ways that promise to dramatically drive down <laughs> costs of healthcare while increasing our effectiveness. So there's great promise there, but with great promise comes great caution. I think the promise for us here at Dartmouth with delivery science is that technology can probably reduce costs, but that's if it's implemented thoughtfully and the financial incentives are aligned. And perhaps it's the financial misalignment that has allowed technology and healthcare to do the opposite of driving down costs. It typically drives up costs. We are a thought leader for healthy skepticism about healthcare. Gil Welch's book, Less Medicine, Better Health, and, and reams of what comes out of the building right across the hall from us you know, helps us have hope that we can actually be rational and payment reform is also an area of interest here on this campus. So, why don't we take advantage of that and lead pediatric healthcare delivery sciences to so start at an early age, modifying expectations and behaviors of healthcare consumers and kids? Again, as we're changing the behaviors around consumables with the Coop Institute, can we reframe the notion of health as not something that's delivered through healthcare providers and not something you always need to run to get? Can we help improve efficiency? Can we disseminate some of our current innovations about efficiency, the newborn care with neonatal abstinence syndrome, our late preterm newborn care, our outpatient starts for new-onset diabetics, which we've been doing here for at least five years, right, Sam? And we haven't necessarily disseminated as widely as we could. And efficiency is key. So Patty Gabow was uh, the CEO of Denver Health. Uh, an important safety net hospital in, in major metropolitan area. Came and gave grand rounds here a few years ago, actually. Um, gave a fantastic talk at the Lown Institute conference in Boston last spring. Put this on your list of meetings to try to go to once. The Lown Institute is really important thinkers um, about what care is the right care um, and part of the Right Care Alliance, similar to the Choosing Wisely campaign uh, that Sean has Constantly reminded us of and introduced us to in valuable ways. But no surprise, we rank 50th out of 55 countries in the Bloomberg Healthcare Efficiency Index. You don't want to know the countries that are 51 through 55, but that basically takes life expectancy divided by healthcare expenditures. So there's sort of a value equation type thing, but it's called efficiency, and we obviously do pretty darn poorly. And it's not just because we pay a lot. It's because our life expectancy also sucks. <laughs> we do badly on both, the numerator and the denominator. 30 to 40% of our health care expenditures, according to the Institute of Medicine, are waste. That's about $750 billion a year. And Patty suggested that as much as 30% of the care that we do receive, not even, you know, take waste, and then you look at the care, maybe 30% of that is, even, is not valuable or even harmful overuse. So these are greatest hits from last December. The imperative of healthcare delivery science is that our national debt is not slowing down. I think we bumped that number up with the recent tax bill that got Mm -hmm. passed. Medicare population is doubling, and spending on adults is going to swamp the spending on kids. It's just going to be a reality. We're going to be those adults. It's not like we don't want to exist and have our own needs. I showed this last year showing the demographic changes, uh, youth population staying the same and then the older population exploding. I talked about how $3.3 trillion in federal health expenditure or federal expenditures basically runs out after defense income and health. And everything else includes those important things about social determinants, education, transportation, environment, energy, etc., This I didn't have last year, because this is a new analysis that was performed that showed um, how, if you look at the share of the population between 2015 and 2026, again, showing that growing elderly population and showing the expenditures already between 1960 and 2015, 4,000 per elderly person to 28,000 per elderly person in 2015, 200, 300 bucks per kid. Now, 4600 is a pretty good, if you do a ratio there, that's not a bad ratio, but it's still only 4600 versus $2,800,000. It's not a lot of resources. <coughs> this came out of a new report commissioned by the Children's Hospital Association done, through, done with Stanford folks on the new importance of children in America. Like, we always knew the kids were in a new importance of children in America. We always knew that children were important in America, but this, this infographic really sort of sums it up. Um, and what this shows that you can't see is basically these kids are almost holding up a weight, a barbell showing the impact of an aging population with the same number of kids trying to hold up. Because not only are we living longer and living healthier. Part of the technological advances will allow us to live healthier and better. So good news for those of us who are heading into that uh, category. But there's also been, not just in northern New England, a precipitous, actually, recent drop in birth rates, such that we are barely at replacement now. We are barely at sort of replacement levels, about two, maybe slightly more than two kids per per couple. And that doesn't show any signs of abating. So it's it's on both sides. So the, the authors of the report suggested that we've got to make sure that that population, that those kids are as healthy as they can possibly be because they're going to be propping up the whole of society as they get to be young adults. So opportunities for us here. It would be nice to now a director of Pediatric Health Delivery Sciences for Chad and TDI, creating a Cobra like core set of resources, <laughs> which is sort of a core um, home for the kind of resources that folks who do this work need. We can optimize a lot of our already existing implementation collaborators. they're part of the CF centers of Northern New England, the Dartmouth Co-op, NEPQIN, the Northern New England Pediatric Quality Improvement Network, our regional program, Pediatric Cardiology, and our Pediatric Improvement Partnerships in Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. We are part of the Children's Hospital Association, and actually one of the early founders of NACRI, which is the predecessor to CHA. Folks at CHA still ask about George Little. We still have incredible influence in these collaboratives. We were one of the early adopters and members of the Children's Hospital Solutions for Patient Safety, where a group, Bridget and, and Carol and, and Sam, go regularly. And again, people think, what's going on at Dartmouth? What can we learn from you guys, despite our size? And we've got international connections through Vermont-Oxford. Could we create a dartmouth Aberdeen network with our new relationship with Aberdeen? We're Aberdeen Children's Hospital. This is where we have strength and, again, opportunities to develop resources to to do this work. At the end of the day, we disseminate it in a lot of ways, but education is one of our prime vehicles for disseminating our strengths and our expertise, sending folks out into the world who have this ability and have this mindset. And certainly Geisel and and Dartmouth-Hitchcock talk about seeding every health system across the country with folks who've been through Dartmouth who have this approach. So our population drives our quest for discovery, innovation, and education, and advocacy. We did some work last fall in sort of identifying our, our mission for our department, our, our, our sort of our dream statement for the department of pediatrics, our, our home for our, our our professionals, our medical and and healthcare professionals. So believing that general pediatrics is foundational to providing comprehensive care in any setting, we foster the ability to manage complexity, the courage to tolerate uncertainty, and the moral clarity to engage in advocacy. Sharing expertise with TDI, we devise, evaluate, and implement innovative strategies for professionals at the top of their qualifications to deliver safe and effective interventions that are needed and wanted by the patient and family, the best care in the least resource intensive settings, the right place, with high reliability every time. We hold our trainees accountable to high standards, entrusting in each individual with increasing autonomy only when she or he demonstrates competence and ownership. And we hold ourselves as a faculty accountable to rigorous teaching and scholarship, prioritizing that which has the greatest impact on child health. Opportunities here include ongoing highest quality undergraduate medical education, graduate medical ed- education, I don't even sort of have to sit, state that but I'll state that to remind us that we have to keep doing the best at what we do in terms of our students and our residents. But we could, we could expand things, we could work on endowing a master's degree training for the, in that Child Health Research Institute for, for any type of a health professional to get a, a master's degree working in that venue. We could, we could potentially fund, fund a general academics pediatric fellowship for someone to do a deeper dive in the regulatory prevention sciences at the Coop Institute or healthcare delivery sciences or health services research at TDI and work in our clinic. And we can make sure that we allow our local and regional pediatricians to engage in direct teaching in the ambulatory setting, keeping the students closer to home and more exposed to, to this Dartmouth way and having to go further afield for their clinical experiences. So all of that is 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 essential. It's necessary, but not sufficient. And advocacy almost is the, the, the thread that has to tie through the entirety of the arc of child health. And I'll remind you of a quote that Don Berwick shared with us at Geisel's graduation last spring that he recently published in the Journal of the American Medical Association just this past month. And he summed it up as, silence is now political. Either engage or insist the harm. There is no third choice. There is no third choice. We talked about political advocacy last December. And I appreciated how greatly people engaged in advocacy this year to help beat back the various attempts to cut Medicaid this summer, in the myriad attempts to um, um, repeal the Affordable Care Act, which they effectively did with a tax bill by getting rid of the individual mandate. But, and I appreciate everyone's continued efforts on CHIP. And it gets tiring to constantly have to call your representatives and remind our, our delegations, which are strong supporters, to continue to be strong. But we'll continue to need to advocate. because Just because technology is coming to improve the environment or to help us do the work on exposures and even genetics, we need to advocate that the resources are actually utilized in the appropriate way, that we have to work hard against those multinationals that benefit and profit from the toxins that they sell. And of course, the whole world of genetics and the ethics of genetic medicine are constantly needing vigilance. And hopefully no one noticed or was going to call me on the fact that I hadn't attended to the probably one of the most important boxes before. The resources of love and caring, housing and community, and education and opportunity that really, I think, are so important to determine an individual's health. Here's where the advocacy gets really big. Really big. So there's a second paragraph to that Newsweek <coughs> article, and it talks about driving down costs of health while increasing effectiveness. But if this profound trend is able to play out, within five to ten years, Congress won't have to fight about the exploding costs of Medicaid and insurance. Instead, it might battle over what to do with a massive windfall. Today's debate over the repeal of Obamacare would come to seem as a backward as a discussion about the merits of leaching. So back to Kat, Patty Gabo and her provocative talk in Boston at the Lowne Institute. She suggested something similar. She wasn't suggesting that there was going to be massive cost decreases related to technology, but she suggested that between the waste and the overuse, there's conceivably a trillion dollars a year in the healthcare delivery system that could be pulled out of the healthcare delivery system, not impacting health care quality one iota. A lot of important changes in there. Probably payment reform would be an important efficiency goal. But what she suggested is that that $1 trillion, when it gets pulled out, then needs to be reallocated to the behaviors, to the income inequality, to education, to the environment, to communities. We need to reinvest the savings. We need to create the savings and make sure that the savings are reinvested into those important determinants of health. That's a big advocacy play because there's a lot of people who are going to take that money and either try and hold on to it in healthcare profits or put it in their pockets. That's our challenge in the next five to ten years. And that's a big ask. So while we're here, i just suggest that we think globally but act locally. And you advocate for yourselves. You advocate for your own role and your own position. and And try to think about The things that challenge and motivate you, that fill your bucket when you come to work daily. And those who work with you and manage you or supervise you, tell them you want to do more of that. You've got to help think about offloading the things that don't fill your bucket and don't motivate or challenge you. Maybe with technology someone else can do a significant portion of what you're doing so that you can do other more interesting things. Maybe technology in and of itself is going to do some of those things. But be proactive about what those things can be so that your job and your day are more satisfying. And that we individually contribute to those cost savings that we want eventually to reinvest into those important determinants of health. When we talk about cost savings, and we will talk a lot about cost savings in the coming year, it's not just about financial stewardship, which is important. We have to be sustainable. But it's, again, the long-term goal is to Take those savings and reinvest them in education and childcare and community and environment and those things that give every child <coughs> the healthiest start that they could possibly have. And with that, happy 2018. I'll take comments or questions. Dr. Kaplan. Would be at my own head, but it, I encourage us to think about the fact that really dealing with um, advertised experiences and the impact it has on health is doesn't cost a lot of money and doesn't need fancy technology. But it really, I, it saddens me that it's not on your list of what resources to because it is something that's so that impacts every single person in this room. We talked about rural poverty, we talked about how uh, behavior is impacted by, um, that that's one of the bigger things that has been impacted. And I just wanted to say that. So, so I would say, I, I would agree. So I would say, um, no, I didn't call out specifically adverse child experiences, although they, I'd say that trauma and violence are among the exposures that have impacts on health. I didn't because I also fear that we get too quickly caught up in jargon and catchphrases, and we don't appreciate the context that everything contributes. And I don't want to say that they're not important, but if we had a better world for kids, there wouldn't be adverse childhood experiences, and we need to go there. The second thing I'd say is, um, and that includes identifying them and treating them in the care setting, uh, it's, it's relatively inexpensive, but it requires skilled individuals to do that work that we don't have an abundance of, as you know. And the Child Health Research Institute is not meant to be exclusive to those topics I listed. The Child Health Research Institute will actually give us a foundation and a platform that for those who are interested in engaging in research to go to and be able to say, I have an idea or a question that I'd like to research. You've got the resources to help me do that. Synergy, I know, is supposed to be that. But synergy is a a little bit difficult to access, I think. Brian's an assistant director. I think many have found that, particularly in pediatrics, synergy is difficult to access. And this Child Health Research Institute would be a place where, if you had a good idea, we could say, yeah, talk with the group there, and they will help develop the study that you want to do. So the list is in no way exhaustive or exclusive, by any means. So, who recognizes the cartoon? Raise your hands. That was the last. That was the last Calvin and Hobbes. That was the very last one that he did. I don't remember what year it was. So let's go exploring. Thanks, everyone.